I have a junior. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm super excited to be reading this passage just because um, it is so deep and it's so moving. And so, yeah, let's get into it. So, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person can, is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Tonight we're going to talk about the evidence of living or real faith. What's the evidence of living faith? James has a lot of good answers for us in what Caroline just read. Let me pray for us before we take a look at that passage a little more carefully. Lord, amen to what Josh said earlier. Um, we need you to breathe your breath of life on us. We need you to use your word to both author faith in us and to perfect the faith that's in us. It is supernatural. It's not of us. This is different than a lecture on campus with just kind of using our minds to piece together information. Jesus, there's obstacles in us and around us. There's distractions inside of us and around us. And we want you and need you to clear the air. We want you and need you to speak directly, clearly, and warmly to us. So because you love us and because you're good, would you do those things? We ask this in your name. Amen. Um, a couple of years ago, Anna and I got into this series called The Americans. I think it's on Hulu. And we kind of binged our way through a few seasons of that all at once. In case you're not familiar with it or you haven't watched it, here's the summary uh, that I found on Hulu, just kind of giving you a, a taste of what the series is about. Philip and Elizabeth Jennings seem like the average American couple. Married for nearly 20 years, they have two children. They run a travel agency. They live in suburbia. They know their neighbors. They often have them over for cookouts. Philip coaches his son's little league team. Elizabeth's involved in her kid's PTA. However, they're masking a secret double life. They are, in fact, Russian spies planted in the U.S. nearly 20 years previously at the height of the Cold War, with Philip and Elizabeth at the forefront of the Soviet Union's attempts to get intelligence on U.S. activities and weaponry. Tasked with countering espionage and tracking down Soviet spies as a special division of the FBI, Stan Beeman is one of their brightest agents, happens to be 
dot, dot, da, Philip and Elizabeth Jensen's next door neighbor. So maybe you want to go watch that. Maybe you're like definitely not watching that. But the series does a really good job of suggesting a question that's never directly asked, but it's suggested throughout all the seasons and all the episodes. And it's this question. What actually is a real American? What is it that makes someone kind of a real American? And how would you know? It can't be claiming American values or American citizenship because the Jensen's had it. By the way, that was based on a true story. They had it. They were citizens. It can't just be doing American things, coaching Little League, being involved in PTA, having your neighbors over for cookouts, celebrating holidays. That can't be what makes you kind of a real, genuine American. It can't be sounding American or looking American because they sounded American and looked American just as much as all of their neighbors and all their coworkers. So again, what is it? If it's not sounding that way, looking that way, having that status, claiming those values, what is it? In thinking about the sermon, I think I rediscovered it the other day. I was filling out an application, and you know when the applications auto-populate our country most of the time? Well, this application, it didn't auto-populate United States as the country, so I click in the country box, and down pops the list of 200 and something countries, and I'm scrolling through, scrolling through, oh, it's a you, I gotta go all the way to the bottom of the list. So I'm, I'm scrolling through all these countries, and different countries start to pop up and catch my eye. And um, some of the countries, I'm like, oh, there's a, there's, a, there's a famine there. I was reading about that in the news the other day. There's hundreds of thousands of people starving right now. Other countries come up to my mind, and I'm like, they're bankrupt. Their economy's kind of been in the toilet for about a, a decade. There's several countries on there I saw that have been in civil war for the past 10 or 20 years. There's countries that, I, that caught my eye as I scrolled all the way down uh, under the thumb of just kind of oppressive dictators and have been for a generation. And I had this little moment. It was just this little thought popped up in my head as I'm finally getting to United States of America. And I think this thought, I think, Lord, thank you that this is the country that I get to select because I could, I could be in a lot of other places right now. Now, I need to qualify something. What I'm not saying is America's the best and all these other countries aren't. And I'm not saying we don't have a, a list as long as my arm of very severe and critical problems that we got to work through. What I'm saying is, and what I'm pointing out is this organic, natural, genuine moment of appreciation for, with warts and all, my country. The ability for us to gather together to be able to say what we want to say and not be arrested for it, worship Jesus and not be thrown in jail for it, be able to make a living, be able to have upward mobility, all these kind of things. There was this organic little moment of, of love for my country, even as I see all of its faults. And that is what Philip and Elizabeth Jensen lacked. This deep-hearted, genuine, unscripted appreciation and love for their country. That's what was different. James is asking, 
uh, in what Caroline just read in this passage that you're holding in your hand, James is asking, what actually is the real mark of a Christian? What actually is the mark of real faith? Because similarly, James is saying it's possible, um, like those Russian spies, to be fully assimilated into Christian culture, into church culture, into RUF culture. It's, it's a thing. It's possible. The phenomenon exists to have the lingo to kind of catch the culture growing up. You're not intentionally trying to live a double life. You just caught this culture, and it's the way you think, the way you talk, the way you worship, what you do with your time. And James is saying, but is it real? Are there these little genuine, organic, unscripted moments of real love, of real delight, real appreciation originating in your heart and showing itself out in real actions? Or does it just exist at that surface level? Anybody can coach Little League. Anybody can be in the PTA. Not anybody can have an organic, spontaneous appreciation for where they live. Not anybody can have that organic, um, spontaneous love for the Lord and love for neighbor. Not a scripted love, but an improv kind of love. So James is asking, when you take away all of the outward trappings, when you take away the cultural Christianity, the religious cliches that we use, maybe you've grown up in an environment where you've used those a lot, what remains? He would ask, what remains? What's left when all that stuff gets washed away? His answer is pretty clear, right? It's almost like jarringly clear, too clear <laughs> in the passage. His answer is the, the mark of a real faith, a living faith, is a genuine heartfelt trust of God. And he would say that genuine heartfelt trust of the Lord always shows up in real life always bursts out and manifests into our decisions and the actions that flow out of those decisions. So he's saying, he's saying, well, if you want to know, um, scroll through kind of today, the events of today, our decisions. When we got to those little, little forks in the road, little decision points in our day, what did we do? He's saying that's where you'll see the evidence. And I'm not saying you're looking for perfection or perfect faith, but that's where you'll see the evidence of what's deeper inside, what's driving those decisions. There's a, uh, well, I guess I'm on an Alabama frame of mind since we were with them all weekend, but Nick Saban has this famous um, saying that I've heard him say in a lot of press conferences after games. He says, what you do speaks so loud that I can't hear what you say. What you do is screaming so loud I can't hear what you say. James is saying something similarly. He's saying what we claim, what we claim, um, so in verse, uh, verse 14 he says, if someone claims to have faith, claims to be a Christian, and James is saying, I'm with Sabin, um, what you claim whispers, what you do shouts. I can't hear what you claim because what you're doing speaks so loud. James would put it in his words, the fruit of a living faith is action just like the fruit of fire is heat. Have you seen those lame attempts at like fireplaces? It's like a TV screen someone put in like a little fireplace and you're like, come on. And you just know immediately for a lot of reasons, but primarily there's no heat coming out of it. 
It's not fire. James would say, if we're not seeing works like what he describes here ever um, in our day-to-day lives, he would say, if there's no heat, is there fire? If there's no love worked out in real life, is there living faith or is it dead? And James is, in a roundabout way, warning us that dead faith can walk around, again, appearing just like living faith. It's possible for two people to be in chairs right next to each other at RUF or at church on a Sunday morning. And um, everything they say sounds the same. The things that they spend their time on that they're involved with is identical. The mission trips they go on are the same. But the motivations that are driving their actions are entirely different. One motivated out of a living and real faith. One motivated out of a love of something else. We'll talk about, I'll, I'll try to flesh that out a little bit more in a second. But it's possible, just for now, James is saying it's possible for that phenomenon to happen. And he's asking us to examine ourselves. And um, the language here, we don't have time to get into this, but the language here is really fascinating to see. In the space of 12 verses, James asks six questions. He gives us two case studies, one hypothetical and one real-life situation that was going on in the people's lives he was writing to. I don't know how many more tools are in the toolbox to get the audience's attention. I assume he has his original audience's attention. Does he have yours? Does he have ours? Um, And he wants to help. He wants to help. He's not coming, throwing a grenade and saying, see ya, and walking out the door. He wants to stay and help. With whatever conclusions you reach, yeah, I think, praise Jesus, what's inside of me is a living faith. Or whether you conclude, I don't know. Or, I don't think so. So before we get any more uh, deeply into this, um, we've got a big question that we've got to ask first. Before we look at what the evidence of a living faith is. It's a big question we've got to ask about first. And I'll be a little brief here because this is actually picking up where we were a few weeks ago. But what's the source? What's the source of a living, real faith? What's the source of it? I mean, the source of my love for my country, I guess, is that I grew up here and, you know, I guess I've thrived here, maybe. That's the source of it. What's the source of a real and living faith in our hearts? And how does it work? Um, in chapter 1, verse 18, do you remember this? It was the week that we, uh, we were ta- he was talking about being doers of the word, not hearers only. He said this, out of his own desire, God brought us forth. So in other words, God birthed us by the word of truth, which is the gospel. That's a synonym for the gospel. That we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Remember we talked about you're the springtime in the world, that God is attracting the world to himself through. You're the springtime. You're the blossom. But let me unpack that verse real quick. He's saying God, out of his own desire, out of his own delight, it pleased him to give birth. If you know Jesus, it pleased God to give birth to faith in you that you could even see or want or know your need for Jesus. And he did it by his own power, too. God brought us forth. So we're not involved in the verbs in that sentence at all. We were the ones who were brought forth by another. God at his own desire, God by his own power, and God out of his own initiative 
out of his own initiative. And I guess I would say, too, for his own joy, because we are his first fruits among his creatures. And he gets joy of resurrecting dead people, dirty people, filthy people, and cleaning them and showing them off to the world and making them new. He gets joy from that. So, again, did you catch the relevant part of that verse, though, that he gave birth to us by means, by way of the word of truth, which is the gospel, which is this. We always want to define that term in case in your mind you think it means something else. The good news is what we mean by that, the good news. So hearing good news that contains this content, that Jesus' life was lived on your behalf, that his judgment and death was endured on your behalf, that his vindicating resurrection that proved him innocent, proved him righteous, was accomplished on your behalf, and that he now lives and intercedes on your behalf to finish renewing you. That's a lot of content. Those are specific things that God has said. This is the good news that I've accomplished through Jesus and offered freely to every nation, tongue, tribe, and every generation. That's the word of truth that God brings to our doorstep through a moment like this, or you reading your Bible, or you hearing something, that gives birth to us. If you turned faith upside down, there'd be a little sticker on it that said, made in heaven. It is supernatural. God says repeatedly throughout his word, faith is a gift. Faith is the gift of God. It's to be received, not fabricated. You can't manufacture it, at least not saving faith, not living real faith. Jesus is the author of real faith, and he's the perfecter of real faith. People are the author of dead faith. I'm the author of dead faith. You turn dead faith upside down, it says made on earth, made here. Um, real faith uh, doesn't remain kind of in seed form, giving, or in baby form, in, in embryonic form. It, it's dynamic. It has a life of its own, and so it grows. It has a life cycle. This is verse 22. This is what James is getting at. He says, you see that uh, Abraham's faith and his actions were working together. There was a synergy between his faith and the works that grew out of his faith, or his confidence in the gospel. And his faith was made complete by what he did. In other words, the life cycle completed it reached its natural termination or natural blossoming when he acted on what he believed. So the cycle goes like this. I just want to make this really clear before we get into the evidence. The cycle goes like this. First, faith considers content. That's what I just shared with you, that Jesus' life was on my behalf. His death was on my behalf. His resurrection was on my behalf. He now reigns and intercedes on my behalf. There's a personal interest in these details in the history of Jesus' life. It matters to me. It's relevant to me. But faith isn't blind. It, it's not a feeling. It's not close your eyes and try to, um, you know, drum up some, um, some feeling. Faith considers content. What's the content? The words of God, what God has told you he's like, what he promises, what he does. So faith is eyes wide open, reading the page. 
consuming that information and saying, is this true or is this not? What does this mean? Faith considers content. It metabolizes content. It digests that content. Again, won't beat a dead horse. This was a few weeks ago. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. It digests. It doesn't just ingest. And because it metabolizes gospel, it digests gospel, the goodness of God towards sinners. It generates courage in all kinds of everyday situations. It generates courage. Now, I need to define this word, too, because when we hear courage, you know, we think like superhero in some huge action movie, fearlessness. Courage does not mean fearless. Genuine courage often feels very scary. I mean, I can't think of a more, um, you know, uh, what's John Wayne. I can't think of a more like rugged kind of American icon of a courageous figure. He said, courage is being scared to death, scared to death, but saddling up anyway. It's often what courage feels like. It's often what faith feels like. Faith often feels weak, trepidatious, a little bit hesitant, but it moves forward. Because at some point, faith brings you to the point where you realize God is bigger and nearer and more real than whatever's in front of me. And he loves me. And so I can move. I can choose. I can decide. I can risk. I can act. So faith considers content. Faith generates courage. And faith acts because of that consideration and that courage that it brings. And this is why James gives us a couple of case studies. Now, the case studies are kind of clear. Even if you don't have much of a, of a background or history in the Bible and you're like, who's Abraham? Who's Rahab? We'll be brief here too. But it's clear even with what James has written. How does Abraham, how do Rahab, how do they consider God's words? Other places in scriptures give a little bit more light here. Paul says in Romans 4, no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. So when Abram's thinking uh, in multiple instances in his life, when he's considering, whoa, this is a big ask. I don't know how God's going to pull this off. Paul says he was considering the promise of God. He was going back to the facts of what God has told him, who God has told him he is. And it says there he grew strong in his faith. See how it leads to that confidence? It generates that strength as he looks at God, not his circumstance, not himself. And it says he was fully convinced or grew fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised to do. Hear how outward-looking faith is? Faith isn't inward-looking. Uh, it, it collapses if it's inward-looking because what courage exists in me? What ability do I have to do any of this? Faith looks outside of itself to this God. Same with Rahab. No not time to get into her story, but basically she was not an Israelite, not one of God's people. Um, some spies who were scoping out Jericho came to her and asked her to hide them in her house. If she gets caught doing this, off with her head. And she lies to the king of her city, king of Jericho. She lies to him and says, there's nobody here. They already left. They're hiding in a roof. And you're like, well, that was, a, that was an interesting thing for her to do, but why did she do it? Why would you risk your neck for that? Joshua 2, where it's recounting the story, tells us, Rahab told these men, when, when we heard, when my people heard of how the Lord your God 
dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Our hearts melted. We feared him. Then she says, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and the earth below. Rahab feared the Lord more than she feared the king of Jericho, and so she acted. See how the confidence grew? She acted. In a spontaneous moment, it's not scripted, it was improv. See how that's improv? It's organic. It comes out of her because she considered, who is this God? Confidence raises, and she acts. James is driving that point home continually. Real faith has a full life cycle. It's always dancing between considering what God has promised, going back to who he is. Forget not the benefits of the Lord, all that he's done for you. Be at rest once more in my soul. It considers who God is. It dances between that step and confidence in him and acting even against impossible odds sometimes, not because you're strong or you're somebody, but because he's somebody and he's strong, and he's near, and, he's lo and he loves you, and he's for you. Dead faith, by contrast, dies early on in the life cycle. It miscarries. It never, never survives, never makes it to real consideration, never makes it to, uh, to confidence rising, certainly never makes it to action. It mimics real faith. We've already established that, right? It can look just like real faith maybe even inadvertently. Uh, but it's driven by other loves. Not driven or animated by a love and a trust in the Lord, but driven and animated by a love and a trust in some other thing. Listen to this. Let's look at James' real-life um, case study that was going on in the church or the people that he was writing to. Verse 15. Um, it sounds like a hypothetical, but there's some clues in here that it's not. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you or one among you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In Hebrew, the phrase that's said here, um, go in peace, is shalom. It was a cliche that every Jew said to every other Jew. It was like, God bless you. God bless you. Be at peace. It was a cliche. Everybody said it to everybody else. And why would somebody say that? Why, why wouldn't someone just ignore it? Uh, it doesn't say that someone who was poor in that community came up to you and asked for clothing or food. It said, suppose there is someone in your community without clothes or daily food, and you go to them. So you're the one initiating action, and you say to them, hey, I'm going to pray for you. God bless you. I hope this all gets straightened out. Why would you initiate, go up to somebody and say that when they didn't even come up and ask you for it? I don't know, reputation? You want to be seen as a spiritual person? You don't want them to think that you're not a, a, a heartfelt, compassionate person? So you were like, hey, I'm really sorry for what you're going through. I'm going to pray for you. What you love is your reputation. It's not faith in the Lord that's driving that or a, a sense of, man, God's loved me at my worst. I get the opportunity to go love other people at the worst. It's, uh, I don't want them to think poorly of me. I don't want my other friends to see me just pass them by. I need to be seen attempting to show compassion to this person. You see what I'm talking about? It's driven by idols. It's driven by something else other than the Lord, and it helps nobody. It's kind of like reading lines instead of improv or memorized lines. 
thinking really hard, like, what, wait, 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 uh, what, what would the religious thing to do here be? What would the Christian thing to say here be? Going and acting. Versus there being actually something true and genuine and legitimate going on inside of you that's animating that movement as you consider that person's need. So if that's what dead faith is and what it's motivated by, what does that real faith look like? What is the evidence of a real living faith in Jesus? One of the things is this, a, a unique eye towards and affection for fellow believers. Um, a lot of what James writes here applies to anybody. We're supposed to love our neighbor, good Samaritan, it doesn't matter. Old Testament prophets are filled with calls for Israel to love the sojourner or the traveler and the immigrant in their mix. So we're supposed to love anybody proximate near to us. That's our neighbor. We're supposed to love them. But James is saying something a lot more specific than that. He says, what good is it, brothers and sisters? And then he says right after that, suppose a brother or sister. So he, his, his case study is someone in this room, someone in this room, another Christian, um, so one of the, one of the things that's, that's in the background with the response that living faith has towards seeing a need like this inside this community is a unique affection for brothers and sisters in the faith, fellow branches connected to the same vine, sisters who are adopted by the same father, brothers who are adopted by the same father, people who share the same older brother, People who, because we're united to Jesus, are automatically united to each other as one. There's a recognition of that in the heart of a believer, in the heart of a Christian, in one in whom there's living faith. Some of y'all have been on a lot of mission trips, and you know what I'm talking about. You've, you've been in any continent, people who share almost nothing in common with us culturally, and you, you know what I'm talking about. You feel that bond when you worship with them, when you meet with them, when you're in their house. You know what I'm talking about? There's that union. There's, there's something in you that sees something of yourself in them and something of Jesus in them. I remember, I've told you all my story, uh, converted right after senior year here at Georgia, and I had just, these guys were, um, they are amazing men. I love them. Um, they're beautiful people, and they were some of my best friends my last two years of undergrad. Um, they are not believers. I was converted towards the end of um, college, and that's when I found out about RUF. It's when I started going to church here. Um, and I had this weird situation happen the first few months after the Lord birthed faith in me and made me alive, and it was not intentional. It was just happening. I felt a greater and greater distance and more like lost in translation moments, culture clash between me and my old friends. And I felt more and more in common with brand new people I was meeting in this room. They could finish my sentences. I would confess sin or, or ask for help in something I was confused and stuck and scared about and I'd see heads nodding. They're like, yeah, me too. There was such a similarity to our love for Jesus, our struggle with sin. I just felt that unique connection to them. James is some, saying there's something similar, a unique connection between you and other believers when there's faith in you and faith in them. 
Um, what are some of these examples? So, so this is why it's all the more shocking when someone with pretty severe needs, like if any of you came to me and said, Ben, I don't have enough money to buy food most days of the week. Like that's a big deal. That's not like I have a flat tire, can you help me pump it up or whatever? Or I don't have, uh, I've got one, one outfit. Imagine the shocks, you notice someone's need. Again, they don't come to you and ask, but you're aw- you become aware of someone in, in the faith has that kind of need and to protect reputation, you go to the, it, it's shocking when you really think about it. So what's a modern day example? Because while there are even people in these circles who you live week to week financially, you don't eat out because you don't have money for it. While that does exist here, what's maybe a more common example that everyone can relate to? Think about social poverty. Think about social poverty. Um, and here's what it might sound like to go and kind of have a face-saving comment to somebody to maintain a reputation when there's not anything real underneath it. So we talk a lot in RUF about wanting to be a place that meets each other where we are and not leave each other stuck there. Say we want to help you get connected to community. So what if you go up to someone and say the right thing? Oh, I'm really glad you're you're here. I've loved RUF too. I hope you love it too. I hope you get connected. But you've actually never done anything to actually help that person get connected. It's just a comment. It's just a cliche, we say. But for example, it's fresh on my mind because we just did comments. When you look back at the past three or four or five conferences you've gone to, nobody's ever been in your car except your tight little friend group. You're aware that there's some people deeply lonely here who are trying to get connected and can't. But you look back and you're like, I never think of them. I never see them because they're invisible to me. Well, then why did you go say, I hope you get connected, I'm really glad you're here? This is uncomfortable stuff for all of us. James says, you gotta ask yourself that question. You gotta examine, you gotta go to your faith. You gotta go to your faith. You gotta go to bare bones, down deep to bone and say, what's going on inside of me? How could I see another believer in that position and just have never more a thought of it. There are beautiful things I see out of y'all all the time, though. There's never been a conference that we've done since I've been here when one of you hasn't come to me anonymously and said, hey, my roommate, I know money's tight for him right now. Um, just forget this ever happened. Here's all the money for his retreat because he won't ask for a scholarship. Um, just call him and tell him someone covered the bill. Y'all have done that. Y'all are people who, uh, at community group, when the, the week you go out to dinner, instead of having a, having a meeting, you'll be like, well, I know this person's not going to come because the place we're going is too expensive, and you just Venmo money before. Y'all do that kind of stuff. Y'all, I've heard stories this week of piling people in your car who you knew didn't know anybody. You're out and like, I got my boys. I'll hang out with them all weekend, but I'm driving this person up. That's living faith. Spontaneous, organic, generated from a love that you know God's loved you with that filters out and flows out into the lives of other people. Look, friends, one thing that James is saying here is life in Jesus is kind of like a high tide that rushes into a harbor. High tide doesn't just raise your boat, it raises every boat around you. 
the love of Jesus unleashed in your life and in your heart that begins to radiate out of you, that is a high tide that raises not just your boat, but all the boats around you. James keeps asking this question, what good is it? What good is it? What good is it? What good is it? What good is your faith for anybody else? Who else benefits? Whose burdens are lighter because of your faith in Jesus? His life inside of you. Who's a little bit more curious about God because of what's going on inside of you and what comes out? Whose ship is rising slowly? Whose needs are met because you're in their life? Life with Jesus is high tide that doesn't just raise your boat. It's not another piece of the self-improvement plan. I do my run every day. I eat well every day. I do my mindfulness in the app every day. I come to RUF. But who's, who benefits other than you or me? James is envisioning the kind of faith that a Christian has where the community benefits. Here's where we need to end. And we're going to have to find some other way to talk about this stuff with the demons because, man, so many thoughts about that. We're just going to have to set that aside. Maybe we'll come back to it uh, in a week ahead. What do you do if you're examining yourself and you're like, oh, not even a question here. I lack. My faith is dead. I don't see much fruit at all when I look back. Remember, where is faith birthed? By the word of God. God gives faith. God births faith through his word. Even tonight, you're hearing his word. What are you going to do with it? You have decisions to make. What are you going to do with it? Um, will, you, will, you, will you agree with him? He's so safe to agree with and to confess and to say, Father, the game is up. You have outed me, and I'm so thankful because I know the way, the reason you outed me is to bring me into the light, to bring me to yourself. Jesus is the author of faith and the perfecter of faith. If you lack it, he's the one you go to. And you say, I'm the poor one. I'm poor. I need you to give to me. Jesus doesn't overlook your needs the way the people in this church overlook needs of their brothers and sisters. He sees them, and he provides for them. And if you look at this and you're like, whoa, it's a mixed bag. This is really convicting like I did. Same, same thing. Who's the perfecter of your faith? Uh, who do we get to go to and agree with and say, Lord, I, there are other things animating my decisions in my life like reputation or social status or wanting people to see me a certain way. I say so many things. I don't even know why I say them. But who's benefiting from my life with you? Who's benefiting? I'm afraid to say, I don't know if anybody or just a few people go to him and pray that you will be the springtime of the first fruits of his creation. He will do it, and he'll especially do it in a yielded, humble servant who admits that to him. Let's pray, friends. Father God, I've just made two really big asks. I've just told my friends and myself to do impossible things. I've just called them come to you, to see you, to love you, to hear your word. And every single one of those things will require your mercy and your gift. But you are merciful. You are a giver. So help us to treat you as God. Help us to ask of you as God. Help us to expect you to be God. Even as it relates to what we've heard tonight, we pray this in your name.